0: Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. And while it's called the Medical Liability Minute, we do speak for more than one minute. Uh, Today, we're joined by my new good friend, uh, Gerald Hickson. And let me tell you about him. He is the Joseph C. Ross Chair of Medical Education and Administration, Professor of Pediatrics, and Founding Director of the Center for patient and professional advocacy, which goes by the acronym CPPA, and we will spend a fair amount of time chatting about this, and this was birthed at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Since 1990, Dr. Hickson's research has focused on why certain physicians attract a disproportionate share of malpractice claims, how disrespect impacts team performance and outcomes of care, and how to identify and support high-risk clinicians. I can certainly say that he's been at this even longer than I have, and I have a few gray hairs, if I have any hair left at all. Uh, Dr. Hickson serves as a member of the Board of Directors of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He also serves as a member of the International Regulatory Expert Advisory Group to the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. That would be my old job and on the board of directors of the University of Southern California Health System, and previously served as chairman of the board of directors for the National Patient Safety Foundation. This is a very important organization. By way of background, he received a BS from University of Georgia, an MD from Tulane University School of Medicine, which a few days ago, while we're recording this, was hit by Hurricane Ida, and I hope that everyone in that area recovers quickly. Welcome, Dr. Hickson. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Jeff, thank you for this invitation and uh, gosh, meeting a new best friend and it's Jerry. And uh, I'm just honored to be here with you and so appreciate
0: But what is always- on how yeah, we make is-
1: medicine better.
0: Yeah, what is shocking to me is that our paths have not crossed before. We obviously know the same people and it's normally it's serendipity that connects people together, but it's... It seems like the forces of nature kept us apart. And it took almost a hurricane to get us together, but here we are, and I'm, I'm really excited to be able to delve into this. It's interesting that a pediatrician would get involved in patient safety broadly and how to uh, adjust or address the problem physician. And here's why I say that. I'm a surgeon by training. Many of the problems that... Um, that I experience in the role of medical justice deals with surgeons. They're in a high-risk environment. It's considered high-risk profession. If you just look at the statistics broadly, if you're a surgeon in the United States, the likelihood of you getting sued before you hit the, or at at the time you hit age 65, is 99%. So there may be a a few people out there who have never received the love letter from an attorney. You will. But that's the domain more often of a surgeon. How, pray tell, did you get dragooned into this?
1: Jeff, it's a great question. And uh, this is why I so looked forward to this uh, conversation. You know, it's when you think about how you wander into a field, and you're exactly right. So much of the work that our center has done is focused on helping very thoughtful, very outstanding surgeons understand that there were certain things about their practice that put them at risk Mm -hmm. and this pediatrician who's an ultimate believer uh in hope that things are going to get better i mean that's part of our investment uh in helping children with their development is the fact that as you provide feedback in a thoughtful way that most individuals will, in fact, get it. I am the ultimate optimist. And one of the things that struck me early in my research career were all the myths and dogmas that tended to make people hunker down Mm -hmm. when a claim did come instead of reflecting on the fact of, gosh, yes, I feel wrong. I've been sued twice as a researcher. So I know experientially what it's like to sit in a courtroom with someone saying ugly things about me but I still needed to walk out of that experience saying, gosh, was there anything I might have done differently? Mm-hmm. And if I had, maybe we all would have uh, avoided this experience. So it's this notion of hope, and we want to keep that hope alive.
0: It's interesting, I um, I was once um, invited to the fourth wedding of a colleague, and um, I think it was described as the triumph of hope over experience. I think the ultimate conclusion was, well, I can't make this one, but I'll certainly make uh, the next one. I, I, you know, just being in the in the chair in a courtroom is very humbling, and at, maybe that isn't the time to reflect back to think about lessons learned. But I think your point is a good one. Before you ever get a letter from an attorney, there's often an escalation of a conflict. It starts with a conflict. Conflict generally involves two people, sometimes more, but it generally gets to two people. And the conflict turns into multiple people when the underlying conflict cannot be resolved. And so one of the questions is, are there missed opportunities? Are there ways to get people to become aware that this is getting out of control? Let's take a timeout, and it's not just conflict in the doctor-patient relationship. There are other conflicts, uh, employer-employee relationship. Many of us are involved in social or romantic relationships. I mean, the principles are not dramatically different. Um, they, you know, they probably are unique to the type of relationship. By and large, with any escalating conflict, there may be an opportunity to take a timeout, reflect, and See how you can tone it back down, and then perhaps use those lessons learned in the future to prevent being in the same place. Conflict never feels good, particularly in healthcare, where um, we're healers, we're not fighters. At least that's my take on on professionals. What are your thoughts on that?
1: So, Jeff, I really like this discussion about professionalism because I want to assert that one of the things that has often gotten us in trouble is that we become providers, not professionals. And so a real professional, whether a pediatrician, a neurosurgeon, or anyone else, we've got cognitive and technical competence, we hope. Mm
0: -hmm. And in
1: fact, our studies of claims suggest over and over that it's almost never, it's not never, but almost never a question of cognitive and technical competence. Our studies have shown it's how humans work together, which then takes us back to the definition of professionalism. It is cognitive. It's a commitment to cognitive and technical competence, but it's also a commitment that's wrapped in, a commitment to clear and effective communication, especially when there's growing dispute that may occur. Your point is it often will sort of fester. Number two, back to your point, It is a commitment to be self-reflective. One of the things that I tell everyone that I chat with about professionalism, we ought to do a test regularly. When I walk into the workplace, whether it's an OR, an ICU, an emergency room, or anything else, am I going to make it harder or easier for others working in this space to do their job? And I find so often that our high-risk clinicians never pause. Now, there are plenty of forces that drive them to stay busy, but the really great professionals do pause and do reflect and self-regulate, which, again, is a critical notion of what any professional
0: does. It's also a missed opportunity because when you work effectively as a team with choreography, it actually feels good. I mean, there's nothing so beautiful as watching people working together To a shared outcome, it doesn't matter if it's in the operating room. It doesn't matter if it's in a team sport, for example, playing basketball. I can think of a thousand examples, but working together, it just feels better as opposed to having to work at odds and fighting everyone else on the team.
1: So, Jeff, this is another great point that you're making, because when you think about what makes a good team, we want to all walk in with the right skill set. We want to take that skill set into an environment in which we're relaxed and we're supportive of others, but life's tough and medicine is inherently stressful. And I learned this lesson uh, incredibly great way by a nursing professional, Adele, in our children's hospital. And we have to learn lessons from others and we have to learn lessons from other members of the team. So I was a sort of, uh, Proud, a little arrogant.
0: <laughs> me too, resident. by the way. Yeah, be, me too, you know, by I, the way. So we, I, I
1: we, we may have that in common. And, and I had created a new plan to ensure that as residents, we received a very predictable, measured number of admissions to our team, and we were never overwhelmed. And we put it into effect, in the first day, I got five admissions simultaneously. Oops. <laughs> So I'm, I'm not a happy camper, uh, but and very quickly in my brain, I prioritized those five patients and I had an elective cardiac catheterization for a child with Tetralogy of Fallot that was being admitted that had been seen in cardiology clinic. What a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. That patient went to number five on my list and Adele called me up and uh, and, and something that I think is really important, she used my first name and always used my first name and that was so important. And she called me up, she says, Jerry, your uh, patient described the, the patient has arrived. In a very snappy way, I said, Adele, I have gotten five patients at once, didn't matter to her. Number two, that patient I'll get to when I can, elective cath hung up the phone. <laughs> now, The pager went off a second time pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Chair, this is a patient and the patient is blue. Well, Adele, any, I didn't say it exactly this way, but anybody knows that patients with tetralogy, it's a cyanotic lesion, they're gonna be blue and I hung up again. She called me a third time. She says, pink when he got here. Now, suddenly my focus changed. That was first patient, it wasn't last patient. But her persistence to call me three times when I had not been lovely in response, it takes a team. And if they work together often enough, and I worked hard for those patients and model respect for Adele, she would cut me slack. But I see so many physicians that never provide an opportunity for relationship building that others who can bail them out don't act in a timely fashion. And that's when we get into unnecessary outcomes that all of us want to avoid. But Adele taught me that lesson 40 some odd years ago, uh, and I still know exactly where I was standing when she communicated
0: very clearly to me. Well, let's talk about Adele's actions in the context of a hierarchy because I would say 40 years ago, there was a different perception of the hierarchy, and it was start at the top and everything flowed downhill. Um, Also around, I don't know if it was 40 years ago or not, there were two, well, there was an airplane wreck on the Canary Islands, two 747s crashed, and rumor has it, and it's probably beyond rumor, that the assistant pilot or the co-pilot was aware of his impending doom and just didn't have the courage to speak up, or if he did, he couldn't make his point known. I'm trying to compare and contrast Adele's actions in this particular case with this horrible tragedy with 500 people lying on the tarmac in the Canary Islands. Now, what's interesting is that post-Canary Island mishap, um, many changes took place in aviation. That became a seminal event in aviation History as it relates to how to prevent such actions down the road, but I think the key finding from that was that yes, there is a hierarchy, and at some point someone needs to be able to you know break a tie. But people in a hierarchy, particularly those at the lower end, should feel empowered to speak up, particularly if they see doom in, in you know through the uh, through the cockpit window.
1: You know, Jeff, I want to reinforce how important this transition has occurred so when i was at charity hospital in new orleans back in the 70s as a student we by chance uh left a surgical instrument in a patient and the senior surgical resident on the team pointed to me uh as a medical student to go tell the family (laughs) that we that we were going to have to take Uh, their loved one uh, back to the OR and touch a few things up.
0: Well, (laughs) quite a euphemism. uh,
1: This was uh, my introduction to disclosure. It also was a, a, a critical driver of why I went into safety. And so these experiences impact you just like Adele, just like being forced to go disclose something that I was not competent to do. But what struck me even more Is that we went to one of those wonderful morbidity and mortality conferences in which the case was presented and standing down at the bottom of this pit uh, that was the surgical uh, theater there at charity uh, was this senior resident and this student like we had when you think about the complexity of care, like we were really responsible, but it was a shame and blame. And a very famous individual was sitting up in the upper uh, right-hand corner. I can still see him because the higher up you sat, the more exalted you were. And he looked down on us and he already knew the answer. The answer was we were just not highly motivated and we weren't really bright. So that culture of shame and blame, led to or was a part or a reflection of the hierarchy that you and I learned in, but so much research has occurred over the past 40 years to help us understand that you do have to have someone in charge. But when, when that human understands the great and unique role that the Adels of the world and others fulfill in getting to the right outcome for the patient. We know that there's more than just hierarchy, but we're still having to learn that. And some of us have to learn that a little bit more than others.
0: I feel with the anecdotes you've just described, we must have trained at the same institution. Um, So I I still remember um, a complication happening and the senior surgeon spoke to the resident and he said, you know, doctor, either you're stupid or you just don't care either you're stupid or you just don't care. And he waited for an answer. He wanted one of those two answers because he says you can't be stupid because you're training here, you must not care. And it just comes down to how to work effectively as a team. There are many other determinants here, but let's segue into um, how you were tasked with solving a particular problem because that ultimately evolved uh, into creation of this behemoth organization that is not only at your academic institution, but seems to have tentacles all across the country right now and is doing really fine work. So let's let's move into that domain right now.
1: Uh, Jeff, thank you for that. I mean, it, it has been a work and, and we've been at it actually at Vanderbilt since 1992. And again, an event occurred. I was interested as a researcher, so I trained at Vanderbilt. I did a fellowship. I was particularly interested in the ways that humans relate to each other. And my initial focus was on patients and their pediatricians. Mm -hmm. We had a terrible event at Vanderbilt in which we had one of those tragic events involving a very nationally recognized surgeon. Uh, And I don't always mean to pick on surgeons. So Jeff, keep me honest. Uh, But in this circumstance,
0: I may hold you to task on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: our, vice, our vice chancellor assembled a group of us at a very nice uh, restaurant downtown, served us drinks and great food, and then he said, with the doors closed and everybody out of the room except a group of us, um, all of us know about this event. Everybody within our institution saw this coming, and we did nothing effective to give a chance to avoid this tragedy that affected a family, Mm -hmm. patient, this professional, and everybody that worked with him, not again. And it was about that time that Frank Sloan, who was an economist at Vandy, also was doing studies looking at claims experiences of physicians in Florida. And he needed a token physician researcher to join the research team. And Frank was someone who believed that it was all about economics. Now that was at the time. Now, what he found was that two to eight percent of physicians by discipline account for 60 to 80 percent of all claims experience.
0: Repeat that again because I think it bears repeating.
1: Two to eight percent of physicians by discipline right. account for an extraordinary percentage of all claims experience. And Randy Boberg followed him with a study that showed that if you're high risk today, you're going to be high risk 10 years from now. So high risk equals high risk, and gosh, we need to do something. So these were the three things that occurred. I told us we got to fix this so people get a heads up, then Frank then followed by others found that these claims were non-random in their distribution. And I, as a researcher, was interested in how come.
0: Hey Jerry, at the time when you were tasked to try and come up with an answer to this, was it kind of a hopeful, assumption? you did say you're an optimist, was it your hopeful assumption that it was a solvable problem other than just terminating those problem doctors, meaning, was there a potential remedy uh, to prevent repeat offenders from becoming repeat offenders? Or put a different way, um, can you solve the problem without kicking, kicking it into somebody else's domain? And you probably had no idea going into this.
1: So, Jeff, uh, this was a challenge. As a researcher, my question is, first, let's understand. Let's push all the war stories and anecdotes away let's see what the data tells us and then this soft-headed pediatrician can we actually do something to bring benefit and early awareness because what struck me is when i went to look at the literature during this time in my career there really wasn't much there Mm -hmm. so we looked and gosh we did studies in florida we spent hours in record buildings in the state of Florida going through medical records. We interviewed families. We interviewed physicians to try to gain insight. And our hypothesis were that, gosh, there are certain disciplines where you're more likely to be sued than others, duh. And you know, Jeff, immediately, if you want to be sued less, you uh, move from being a neurosurgeon and you become a pediatrician and you solve part of that challenge, but that's not satisfying we looked at the complexity of care. We specifically looked at cases involving litigation against obstetricians and we looked at measurement of the complexity of the delivery. No effect. In fact, it's often the unexpected, apparently low risk. And that gets back to the teams and we can talk about that later. Uh, We looked at the uh, locations. And certainly, there are more lawyers in certain counties in Florida than others, but when you got right down to it, you got a a few little blips on the indicator panel, but the driver was consistently, we heard the same messages from family interviews and interviews with others that for some reason, this particular clinician doesn't seem to play well with others. Now, I want to make it very clear that random stuff occurs. But if 60 to 80% of claims are related to a smaller group, where do you put your focus? Now, the key question goes back to what you just said, because we had many individuals that thought a draconian solution was in order, but that's not true. And this pediatrician wondered did these surgeons, do these pediatricians, do these obstetricians, do these emergency medicine physicians, do they buy into the fact that everybody in my discipline is sued? And yes, a large number of neurosurgeons may be sued, but that distracts from the 8% that have way more than their fair share. And so we have a tendency to want to say, oh, it's just all of us. And this pediatrician said, I bet if we let these individuals know in a stepwise way that appeals to their professionalism first, I bet we'll bring some along. I didn't know how many we would bring along. And if that doesn't work, we'll escalate the level of intervention a little bit stronger, and I bet we'll bring some more along. And then we'll dial up their rates, and that'll bring some along, and there will be a very few left. That was the hypothesis. And I will tell you now after 25 plus years of intervening on thousands of high-risk clinicians, I guarantee you the vast majority get it. They may not like the initial message, but they get it and they stay in the right place going forward.
0: So what you're suggesting is given the right information, the right feedback and the right type of, yeah, I guess intervention, That they get the message with the goal being to get them closer to the mean, to get them back to where their colleagues are performing and not be the outlier. You know, interestingly enough, most physicians, maybe all physicians, are competitive by nature. They do not, and it's. I think we're self-selected to be competitive. I mean, it's hard to get into medical school. It's hard to finish medical school. It's hard to get into a residency. So we're used to the competition, the survival of the fittest. And I think when you show someone a scatter graph of where they are compared to their colleagues, whether it comes down to making money, whether it comes down to how much money you're spending in the operating room, or as the euphemism goes, resource utilization, or online reviews or whatnot, most most doctors want to be outside of the mean. They want to be above average, but they definitely do not want to be below average. So how did this how did this evolve? I mean, it sounds like the initial rationale for performing this was ugly publicity and the cost of insuring claims is that was that the primary motivation or was there a broader and and deeper motivation to this
1: so this is why i go back to ike robinson and our vice chancellor because ike had a heart and he recognized he's great clinician himself researcher leader But he said, we want our team members to be healthy and to be performing well. And clearly we don't have a reliable approach to provide feedback. And I want something more. Now, Jeff, it's complex. Life's a bell-shaped curve. And what we found in our data, and we found two great sources of data that we use. So we stumbled on the fact that unsolicited reports from patients and families, Mm -hmm. observations, complaints, that are captured by a system of the patient advocate or patient relations. But those stories are unbelievably useful because even though patients and families don't use medically sophisticated language always to describe what they're observing. You and I, when we go into another field, we know when something's not right in that workplace. Mm -hmm. We see it. We may not use the group's language, but if an organization will capture those reports, and what our research team has learned to do is how to code those reports. And we use natural language processing, now we can separate wheat from the chaff and we can take those data and we can sort of distill them down into the creation of a risk score for that individual. Now, I'll tell you a funny story. When we started the work, we started with a handful of institutions. You know, I would present at a research meeting and somebody would knock on my door and say, gosh, would you do this for us? Well, I never really thought about that, and I said, gosh, uh, let's try this and see, and I kept being stunned, and now I have been stunned 300-plus times. The complaint distribution offered by patients and families is exactly the same in every institution we've ever looked at. 50% of clinicians never get an unsolicited patient complaint in a four-year audit period ever. Nice. Nice. 5% 5% are responsible for 35 to 40% of those reports, and guess where our claims generating clinicians reside? Right there in that group. And then the rest of us get an occasional complaint, don't sweat it, do service recovery, back to your first point, get back in and and uh, try to make right what is perceived, note that word perceived to be wrong, sometimes wrong. And We use those scores then to create a distribution curve. And just like you talked about, shows a nice picture. And we put a red, you are here dot, (laughs) where the doc stood. And the other key that we learned that's so important is that in the first interventions, we had them done by peers. Peers.
0: They're not a hierarchy, Mm -hmm. not a... Not a note from the boss. Um, It's somebody who is a lateral colleague.
1: So important, because as soon as the boss is involved, we now are fighting. Yeah. And so the notion is, Jeff, if I were gonna deliver this to you, and never would, but if I delivered this, number one, I would uh, not be a pediatrician because you'd ask me what the blank, Uh, a pediatrician knows about neurosurgery and I'd have to answer nothing. But I would say, Jeff, I do know that patient complaints give us insight to practices, practices, not you, practices that may be at risk. And I brought you a distribution curve that shows now 100,000 other docs, uh, but in the old days, maybe uh, a couple of thousand docs and you're here and all of your colleagues are down here. And I want you to look at these and the reports, and I want you to reflect on what they may say to you. There may be things here beyond your control, but Jeff, if there's anything here that you can do, I bet you'll do it. So we took that pediatric approach of encouragement as a first step called an awareness intervention, again, delivered by peer, trained, because there are certain characteristics about physicians that make them very bad messengers because they want to fix your problem. And Jeff, this is not about me walking into your office and fixing your problem. It is about me appealing to your professionalism, your natural tendencies to be competitive, your desire to fix your own problems. And the great news is that the vast majority of those in the high risk
0: group do. How, how, how long does a typical initial interaction take? And is the doctor aware of it happening or is it a knock on the door, hey, surprise, surprise?
1: Well, one of the things that we did is that I brought together uh, pretty significant groups of very thoughtful clinicians in all disciplines and asked them, what would you want the characteristics of this visit to be? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to direct it, I want, the potential recipients to tell me what works the best and so it's always in your office not my office you're always warned in advance that we're coming for a visit and why you're also reminded within this letter that gosh this has the endorsement of medical leadership however that organization and group is constituted because it does have to have the foundation Because Jeff, and we can talk about this later, uh, a small percent will not respond. And you have to be able to move forward to a plan B, which even still works really good. Uh, And then they told us that, I don't want anybody coming in here telling me what to do. I want them to maintain the confidentiality of the process. I want the deliverer of the message to acknowledge that this may be by random chance. Why fight? And then finally, Jeff, you're an important member of this team. And the only thing I want you to do is reflect on what this may say to you. Now, Jeff, this is a part of an ongoing process. In an X month period of time, based upon the frequency of data, we'll be back. And I am convinced that when I come back, the data will look better.
0: And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of Medical or Dental Justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1 877 MEDJUST. That's 1 877 MEDJUST or 633 5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we wanna protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N Epheson Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358. 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.